As we take our seats and get ready, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, Got a notice while we were in between there that um, during our time of worship, there was no music, and that was because I forgot to plug my guitar in, so I apologize for that. So we'll try to do better next time. All right. Matthew chapter 17, we are picking it up um, in verse 14. So let's uh, begin reading there. We also have it here on the screen. If you uh, did not bring your Bible, we do have some Bibles uh, on the table behind the pole there. If you didn't bring your Bible, um, and we are reading from the New King James Version. So taking a look at Matthew chapter 17, picking it up in verse 14, reading down to the end of the chapter. The word of God reads as follows, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast excuse me, why could we not cast him out? And so Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax said to Peter, excuse me, the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their own sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, Lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Lord, would you give your blessing to the reading of your word? May it penetrate our hearts and may it open our minds to to see and understand and experience all the things that you have for us this morning. Would you bless us as a church? Would you bless our tithes and offerings as they are given for your service? Would you bless our missionaries, Lord, as they serve you faithfully and selflessly in the field? We look to you now, Lord, to be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, uh, while we were away, Pastor Mitch had walked us through the first 13 verses what's known as the transfiguration and just for context we're going to swing back and pick up some key points that will sort of guide us into um, our study today also as we were talking this week uh, he felt like there was a couple of key points that he could have emphasized better and I always feel that way after every message and so uh, hopefully we'll maybe fill in some some information there as well. So back up at chapter seven, chapter 17, verse 1, as we were reading about the Lord Jesus taking um, his disciples to the base of this mountain, and we talked about what that mountain might be and where it might be. The mountain itself, the location is less important, but the, the mountaintop experience is what we focus on. And so as uh, Jesus went there, he left the nine disciples at the base of the mountain. He took Peter, James, and John, uh, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured or transformed before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we know that that word for transfigured 
is the word for metamorphosis, and I think we all understand that with respect to a butterfly going into a cocoon. Uh, the butterfly is this, this caterpillar, and as it goes in and it spins this co- cocoon and it comes out, the, the, the body is still that same caterpillar, but now it's grown wings. And in essence, what's happened in that metamorphosis process is what is inside has grown outward. And that's what's happened for that butterfly, and, and so it is for our Lord Jesus. We may ask the question, why the transfiguration? What was happening here? Why did this event take place? Well, Jesus was revealing as the Messiah, as God incarnate, who he truly was. His true character and nature was being revealed in glory before these three men, these three disciples. And we can uh, look at and talk about whether or not these three disciples were kept close to Jesus, perhaps because they were the most needy or the most prone to wander off or to get into trouble. But we could also look at them as, and I believe this is the case as well, that these are three men whom the Lord looked at and said, you three will be kind of the leaders to carry things forward along with the rest after my departure. So the Lord's image, his, his, his figure, his, uh, his form was changed. Not his body, but he began to radiate the glory of God. And, and it's interesting as the Lord Jesus went up on this mountain with his disciples and we see that two men appeared to him and they are listed here as Moses and Elijah. Remember what happened with Moses when he went up on the mountain and he came down and he was glowing so much from having been in the presence of the Lord that he had to cover his face with a veil because the people could not, they couldn't tolerate the the radiance of the glory of God that was emanating from his being. And I believe this picture of Jesus going up on the mountain and meeting Moses and Elijah symbolizing the law and the prophets was in sense a, a bit of a reenactment of what happened on that day when Moses went up into the presence of the Lord except I'm quite sure that the glory that radiated from the Lord Jesus Christ was much more intense in nature. And this word for transformed or transfigured or metamorphosed is used a grand total of four times in the scriptures, twice here in the Gospels, once here in Matthew, once, once in Mark's account in Mark chapter 9. But it's also used in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and let me read that to you this morning. Paul writing says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's our word, metamorphosed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul is now taking this image of being metamorphosed and if you will, Paul is borrowing from what happened on the mountain that day as he writes this verse and he's also borrowing from what happened with Moses up on the mountain and he's saying we are being transformed, you and I, common everyday believers in Christ filled with flaws and unbelief, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so that day when Jesus revealed who he was and his glory shone forth through his person and his garments were, you know, one of the accounts says, wider than any fuller's soap could get it. In other words, think of bleaching something and making it the whitest that it could possibly be and then think of shining maybe a black light on it and you see that luminescence and now the sun is beating down and the glory is radiating off of that, and it's so intense. And Jesus' true nature, his true character, is being released from within. The same word is also used in Romans chapter 12. You may have this memorized. You may have it underlined in your Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewing of your mind. So we see that there's this metamorphosis taking place in the sanctification process and the life of us as believers where by being in the presence of the Lord and the very fact that his spirit is within us, he's transforming us from glory to glory, from the lesser glory to the greater glory and that will be ultimately completed on that day when we pass from this life and we are in his presence forever and ever. But there is a process going on here now that he's doing internally 
And there's a part of it that we're responsible for, which is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is, getting into the Word and allowing the Word of God to speak to us. Opening the Word and allowing it to wash our minds and to flush out all the garbage. And to replace the falsehood with the truth. To replace the darkness and the lies with the truth of God's Word. Do not be conformed to this world. And and again, I I love J.B. Phillips' translation here. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, that there might be fruit that comes forth from our lives. So our Lord's glory was not reflected, but it was being radiated from within. And as this happened, of course, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared uh, to them there, and they all saw him, but they were talking with Jesus in particular. And the other Gospels, uh, Mark and Luke, tell us that they were talking to Jesus about what would happen when he reached Jerusalem. We're now inside six months away from the cross. We've already uh, gone through so far in this Gospel of Matthew two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. We're, We're coming down to the final days. We're inside the last six months leading up to the cross. And we are told that what Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about was his departure. And the word for departure is the word exodus. And that ought to just send off fireworks in our minds as Christians, right? The book of Exodus, where Moses led the people out of slavery and out of uh, the sin of the world, out of Egypt into the place where God's glorious presence was in the wilderness. And of course, there in the wilderness, God provided for his people with a pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And so this word exodus that is being used here is the word departure. Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about how he would be glorified through his exodus from this life. Remember, he was God incarnate who came to live on this earth and to show to us who the Father was. Of course, he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus, representing the law and the prophets. Of course, there were many prophets. There was only one lawgiver. God gave the law through Moses. But, Moses, uh, but Elijah was sort of the first, the forerunner, uh, the head waters of the prophets as he came. And everyone was, uh, after Elijah, often referred to, you know, going in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So Moses and Elijah... We were talking the other day about uh, the significance of the appearance of Moses and Elijah. You know, through the Old Testament, of course, they were significant. The Jews of Jesus' day always looked back to Moses and Elijah as being the, the symbolic picture of the law and the prophets. And then we fast forward to Revelation chapter 11. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, or if you were here with us in 2019 when we went through the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 12, we have this this picture, this story of these people called the two witnesses. Who are these two witnesses? And uh, it's beyond our scope this morning to go into great detail on who all the possibilities of these two witnesses could be. But let me just fast forward and say, I believe it's Moses and Elijah. And the reason why is because of their prominence of the Old Testament, number one. They're appearing to Jesus here in this position, validating to him that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And you remember, of course, that day following the resurrection that Jesus was on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and he met those two disciples and he was veiled to them in terms of who he was. And he said, why are you so sad? And they said, you know, where have you been? Are you the only one who doesn't know what happened to this Jesus of, of Nazareth? We thought he would be the Messiah. We thought he would be the Savior. And then it says there, beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he expounded to them why the Christ must, must suffer and die. So no doubt, Jesus spoke using the, the law and the prophets, or if you will, Moses and Elijah. When we come to Revelation 11, 
you know, again, there are possibilities, but I believe on that day, as you read Revelation 11, 1 through 12, of course, it does not specifically say who those two witnesses are. They are not named. But the reason I believe that it would be uh, Moses and Elijah is also in, in part because of their appearance to Jesus here on the mountain. But also, as they stand before the whole world, you see the law and the prophets were there for the Jewish people. And in the book of Revelation, we come to a very special time where God is ministering not only to the world, but especially, specifically to the nation of Israel. And if you want to get into this more deeply and investigate it, when we read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul looks at Israel's past, their present, and their future in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in chapter 11, it's their future. And chapter 11 ties very closely with the book of Revelation. So I think there's just a lot that comes together there. That's my opinion. You can take it or leave it. Uh, but I did find this interesting quote uh, regarding Moses and Elijah, and I'll just read it to you, as to why uh, people wonder why these two in particular. Uh, one commentator noted that some have seen in Moses who had died and Elijah, who had passed from this life without dying, remember he was translated, taken up in the chariot of fire, um, as representatives of the two groups that Christ will bring with him to establish his kingdom, uh, his kingdom dead saints who are resurrected and living saints who have been translated. So seeing those two as a, a type, and of course we have to be careful with how we see types. And then as we go through that, section there looking at the what happened up on the the mountain we also know that as God spoke to Jesus that day on the mountain in verse 5 while he was still speaking a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him and we remember in Hebrews chapter 1 the Lord penned these words through the Holy Spirit God who at various times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, listen to verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 conjures up this vision of what happened that day on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this voice from heaven, God the Father speaking about God the Son, just like he did all the way back on the day that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptizer. And there on that day, as his voice thundered from heaven, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here on this day, he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. So the disciples, when they heard it, they fell on their faces. They were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. It's interesting, the tense there in what Jesus said when he said, arise and do not be afraid, literally would mean, do not continue to continually be afraid. And I think this points out and calls out not just them, but us as disciples today, of how all of us probably have some measure of fear in our hearts. Most of us, many of us are afraid to release our lives to the Lord. And we Sometimes think, well, if I say, okay, Lord, like, like Moses, excuse me, like um, Isaiah prayed in Isaiah chapter 6 as he encountered the Lord's presence there in the temple where the train of his robe was filling the temple and the glory of the Lord filled that place. And Isaiah was overwhelmed. He was brought to that place where he said, you know, in response to the Lord saying, you know, who will go for us? And Isaiah, the only response he could say was, uh, here am I, Lord, send me. And I think many of us think that if we ever come to the place where we actually say that and mean it to the Lord, that he's going to make me pack up, sell everything, and go to some remote part of the planet. Now, he might. I'm not God. I can't tell you that he, he will or he won't. But mostly, I believe God just wants us to surrender to him and to say, Lord, my life is yours. Do not continue to continually be afraid. 
And when they had lifted their eyes, there in verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. I love what Peter said there in his recollection in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, capitalized excellent, capitalized glory, where he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him, where? On the holy mountain. Peter recalling that. John recalling something similar in John chapter 1 verse 14 where he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was transformed, he was changed, he was metamorphosized. Peter, James, and John saw this. They were with him up on the mountain. It was a special time. And now we, today, here, all these years later, and any believers who sit and read this passage of Scripture or hear it preached and taught, we have seen, we have heard this same revelation of the Scriptures through the Scriptures of what happened in and through Jesus' life and what happened to these disciples in the presence of the Lord. What effect should this have on our lives? When we go to the mountain to be filled, we go to the mountain to, be, to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Now we can think of this in many ways. I like to think of it those special times where we get alone with the Lord especially when you can go away and sit at the beach or go up to the mountains literally or maybe go away on some kind of a retreat and just have time to just have our senses cleansed and to be renewed and to be refreshed and just to be in the presence of the Lord and to seek His face and to seek answers to the questions we have about our lives and those nagging things that we just have never gotten answers to. We should go to the mountain. We should seek to be with Jesus and to allow him to do these things for us. And while we can look at these mountaintop experiences or these times away on retreats and that kind of a thing, and those are always good and we need them. We need those times of refreshing. But we need it daily. And if I could be so bold this morning, I think we should have this perspective of when the church gathers. That in essence, we also are coming to the mountain to hear from the Lord, to receive from the Lord. Because you know what happens when you're up on the mountain, eventually you must come back down that mountain. And you must go back to the valley below. We always have to come back to real life. Don't we always dread the Monday after we come back from vacation? Because we know by nine o'clock vacation's over, right? It's just all over. We had a great week or a great two weeks or whatever. Yeah, there's the first amen of the day. Thank you. But the Lord wants to fill us up so that he can use us. He ministers to us so that we will draw near to him and then we will be equipped to speak on his behalf, to minister on his name, to bring his love to people, to bring the wisdom of God, to bring the light of Christ to a hopeless and a dark world. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's who we are now. Having gone to the mountain, having met Jesus. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him in that manner, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 that I just read, it will be as if we were on that mountain with Peter, James, and John. John goes on to say, and everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. As Messiah, as in God incarnate, as the Son of God, Jesus was fully submitted to the Father as he went through this experience and now he's if you will, filled up from this mountaintop experience for this last six-month journey to the cross. You know, the world's philosophy is save yourself. 
But the Christian's philosophy, according to the scriptures, is yield yourself to God. And as Jesus stood there in glory, Jesus proved to the three disciples that surrender always leads to glory. Surrender always leads to glory. First the suffering, then the glory. First the cross, then the crown. That's the way that God leads us. So they came down from the mountain, and as they came down from the mountain, Jesus encounters a little bit of chaos at the bottom of the mountain, not too unlike what it was like when Moses came down from the mountain. You may remember when he came down, he found the children of Israel in a full-blown idolatrous event. And as Jesus comes down, it's not quite that bad, but he experiences something that the other nine disciples have encountered. And when they had come, verse 14, to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now again, the other uh, gospels, Luke and Mark, give us a picture here that this demon uh, seized this boy pretty much from uh, the time he was a little child. And this, this son, he says, is an epileptic. The literal word would be lunatic, meaning someone who's you know, uh, influenced by the phases of the moon. But uh, it would be uh, this man here has a son who has a seizure disorder and it's being attributed to Satan. And we are being told here, again through the other Gospels as well, that this d- demon is dominating the life of his son. And this, this, they, they can do nothing. As parents, they can do absolutely nothing to prevent this. At times, uh, he goes into convulsions and uh, he goes uh, flat, he goes stiff. And the word there is a, in the Greek is a word that's like rigor mortis. And when the, the demon is done with him, his, his physical frame is just exhausted. And then the demon at times would throw him into the fire and try to burn him and kill him. And other times it would throw him into the water and try to drown him and kill him. And this is just a terrible, terrible situation. Imagine being the parent of a child like this. You have had no chance really to be with that child as parent and child and to love them and do things together and, you know, go fishing and go camping and do whatever we do with our kids. Their whole life is spent being caregivers to this child. And this man, out of desperation, comes to Jesus when he comes. Uh, the disciples meet him at the base of the mountain. And although I don't know it to be this way, I would imagine they're sort of there as the, the security guards. And they kind of go, hey, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's in conference right now. You're going to have to wait right here until he comes down. And as he brought them to the disciples, remember going all the way back to chapter 10 of Matthew. Remember, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples two by two. And he said, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, I've given you the power, I've given you the authority to go and do these things. You remember, he sent them out two by two as the 12, and later he sent them out as the 70, giving them pretty much the same admonition. I'm giving you the authority and the power to go and in my name to do these things. And here we are now, sometime later, Jesus is indeed up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, meeting with his father, meeting with Moses and Elijah, revealing his glory. And he comes down and he finds this demon-possessed boy and his father. And Jesus says, I'm sure in part out of exasperation and in part out of just sheer sadness for his disciples, verse 17, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. So here's what Jesus is saying. You've been with me. You've seen for two and a half years all that I've done. You've watched the miracles. You've watched the feeding of the 5,000, of the 4,000. You've watched the countless people that have been healed. 
You have seen me lay my hands on people and speak to demons and cast the demon out. And when Jesus casts a demon out, it's gone. It can't come back. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Are you not understanding this? Have you observed nothing? Have you learned nothing? And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour, from the moment Jesus spoke. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out, Jesus? What happened? Well, we did it before. Why couldn't we do it this time? What was wrong? Did we forget the formula? Did we miss something along the way? One person expressed it this way, the fault lay in the disciples. And he said this, when the ministers of the gospel find their endeavors with respect to some places or persons ineffective, they should become by private prayer, excuse me, they should come by private prayer to Christ, humble themselves before him and beg to be informed whether some evil in themselves have not been the, co the cause of the unfruitfulness of their labors. I felt that way many times. We are all apt to contract a habit of doing religious acts in a thoughtless and perfunctory way. Like Israel, puffed up with the fall of Jericho, we are ready to say to ourselves, ah, oh, the men of Ai, that's just a few guys, Joshua chapter 7. Do not make all the people toil up there. Like Israel, we often learn by bitter experience that spiritual battles are not to be won without hard fighting. The ark of the Lord must never be handled irreverently. God's work must never be done carelessly. So Jesus said to these disciples in verse 20, because of your unbelief, that's the reason why. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you, Lord, why, why couldn't we do anything? Everything we did, everything we tried, we couldn't cast this demon out. This poor boy was, was seizing and the demon was throwing him around and no one could do anything. We couldn't even approach him. What happened? Because of your unbelief, because of your lack of faith. Now notice what Jesus says here. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed... Now, we've already talked about the mustard seed before, but, you know, it's just a tiny little black speck. And Jesus is talking about the fact that basically if you have faith at all, if you believe in who I am, if you understand who I am, if you trust in me. And remember, they are standing now at the, the base of this mountain they've just been up on, the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, and you will say to this mountain, and I believe he's gesturing back to the mountain they've just walked down off of. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Was Jesus spiritualizing? Was he saying hypothetically this could happen? Or was he saying literally, by faith, you can move a literal mountain, a big pile of dirt and rocks from here to there. I don't think Jesus was spiritualizing his own words. I think he was speaking literally. Remember earlier, these are some of the things that have been said up till now. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said to a man who uh, needed healing, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Mark ten twenty seven. but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. You remember in Luke chapter one, as the angel came and said, you're going to have a baby? We find it recorded in Luke one thirty-seven: for with God nothing will be impossible. And in Luke 18.27, he said the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I don't think Jesus was speaking hypothetically here in Matthew 17.20. I think he was trying to help his disciples understand that faith is real. 
And it's not like, as we often think, you know, it's not like quantity. It's not like I have a little bit of dynamite like a firecracker and I'm going to try to go mine some, some precious stones. Or I have a big truckload of dynamite that can blow up a whole section of, of rock. We can't think of our, our faith as that way, a firecracker compared to a truckload of dynamite. He's just saying if you have faith, period. Faith is just belief. Faith is trust. Faith is looking at God and saying, Lord, I know who you are. Listen, if you're here this morning, I believe you're here because you have faith. You've believed in Christ, right? You've believed that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse you from all sin. And by believing by faith, when that happened for you, when it happened for me, was it because you had a truckload of dynamite or because you had a firecracker? You just had faith. You believed. And Jesus said, speaking in verse 21 of this particular situation they were facing, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So we encounter something quite unique here this morning, that they've encountered something different here. So they had a lack of faith, we just heard earlier in verse 20. They had a lack of prayer. He, Jesus says this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And I believe he's speaking there of their own personal prayer, of their own personal preparation leading up to the situation that they were facing. And certainly praying over the, the person or the individual involved. But he says by prayer and fasting, and I believe as we look at the issue of fasting, we can look at that as an issue of discipline, of, of preparing ourselves for the battle. So three reasons for their failure were lack of faith, lack of prayer, and lack of discipline in their fasting. Now one commentator said this, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Prayer is what attaches us to the spiritual world. In other words, prayer is what attaches us to the Father. But fasting is what de-attaches us from this world. Fasting is what de-attaches us from this world. Prayer attaches us to God. Fasting detaches us from this world. And as we look at this world, we can, we can define the world in many ways. The world is certainly under the influence of Satan. But today, if we want to have a little discipline and focus in our lives, one of the first things we need to do is take our phone and turn it off. Yikes. Turn off the TV, put the computer away, social media, sugar. Whatever it is that is a distraction for us. But certainly food. Food gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? So many of us, we live for food. We live for the best things in life. Prayer and fasting. And when Jesus said this kind, we wonder what he meant. Well, the, the word this kind is the word for genos, which means this breed, this type, this lineage, this stock. In other words, Jesus seemed to be saying that this was, if you will, a particularly strong and resistant type of demon. As I was thinking about that, two passages came to mind. In Daniel chapter 12, you may remember that Daniel had been praying and seeking the Lord. And we find recorded in Daniel chapter 10 verse 12, then he, this is Gabriel the angel, said to me, Daniel, do not fear for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. In other words, I've come to bring you the answer to your prayer from the throne of God, Daniel ten thirteen. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. There was a strong demon that opposed uh, Gabriel, and he had to go get Michael, the archangel, to come and help him fight this individual, this demonic presence, so that he could get through to Daniel and accomplish his mission of bringing the answer to his prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 we're probably familiar with these, these words, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. We should never take these things for granted. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, or excuse me, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We show our faith in and reliance upon God through prayer and fasting. It displays an occupation with and a dependence upon our Lord Jesus. Great prayer and fasting also display earnestness before God that brings answers to prayer. We often pray dispassionately, almost asking God to care about things that we care very little about ourselves. Prayer and fasting demonstrate a few things. First of all, a great willingness to identify with the afflicted person. We care enough to enter into their suffering through prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting also demonstrate an understanding of the strength of the demonic world. We don't want to take that for granted. Prayer and fasting demonstrate that we have a great dependence upon God, and they demonstrated a great desire to fight and to sacrifice for the sake of the deliverance of another human being. Spurgeon said, He that would overcome the devil in certain instances must first overcome heaven by prayer and conquer himself by self-denial. So, prayer and fasting. Faith. Trusting the Lord. Things that we may hear often, this Christianese to us in some respects, but things we cannot take for granted ourselves. In fact, as we think about the things in life that often occupy our time and our headspace as we think about things, so often when something tragic happens in our lives, don't those things so often just get stripped away? They seem so unimportant compared to the tragedy that's before us such as someone with a great illness as being diagnosed with cancer or a sudden death in the family, for example. When we go through those things, it clarifies our perspective. It helps us understand our priorities. And so it is with these kinds of trials that Jesus and his disciples encountered. F- prayer, fasting, faith, seeking the Lord. So Jesus, on the heels of all this in verse 22 says, uh, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, and you kind of get the sense here, they're maybe sitting around the campfire, and all of a sudden Jesus kind of throws out this random thing here and says, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now this is not the first time Jesus has told them about this. But remember, he's inside of six months now. He's now thinking about and leading up to the time of the cross. And as he tells them this, it seems like they're beginning to understand it. They're beginning to understand that Jesus must suffer. But one thing we have to understand here is that Jesus was not presenting himself as a victim. He's presenting himself as a person who is willingly submitting himself to the will of God, even if that means the harsh abuse and mistreatment by people. I think that to me, as I read verses 22 and 23, it helps me think about my own perspective in terms of life and suffering. Sometimes we can have a perspective that you know, Lord, why me? Why did I have to have a flat tire on the way to work or, you know, whatever our inconvenience in life is? Listen, when we submit our lives to the Lord, it doesn't matter. When, when these things happen, God uses these things for his glory and, and for our instruction. Sometimes it's for our discipline. Sometimes it's for our learning. Sometimes God just wants us to be dependent upon him. Maybe he hasn't heard from us in a while, so he brings a little flat tire into our lives so that we pray and say, oh, Lord. And he's like, oh, there you are. We have to understand that our lives must be lived in dependence upon the Lord. Jesus did that. So this last little section here, as they continue the journey, then when they had come to Capernaum, 
Verse 24, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And as usual, they're trying to find some fault with Jesus. And Peter said, "Mm, yeah, of course he does. But he didn't say anything to Jesus. He didn't talk to Jesus about it. He just answered on Jesus' behalf. And you see in verse 25, and when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, here's the situation. The book of Exodus spells out this thing called a temple tax. It was a half shekel tax for every male over 20 years old, and it was to be given one time per year. And Exodus tells us that the intent of this offering, and it was an offering, it was a special atonement offering that was to be given as unto the Lord. And then from the side of the priests and the temple servants receiving that offering, they were to use it for the maintenance and the service of the temple. So it was indeed, if you will, a temple tax. But it was really an offering to be given unto the Lord that was to be designated specially to be set aside for that purpose of the maintenance and the service of the temple. But by this time, of course, uh, the Jews, the scribes, and the Pharisees had taken all these things, these laws, and we've talked before about how they've put their own traditions and interpretations and understandings around it. And there's the Mishnah and the Talmud, and the Mishnah is a 60-volume commentary on their understanding of the law. And then they wrote the Talmud later to further clarify the Mishnah. And, you know, this is what Jesus speaks of when he says, you know, you've, you've put heavy burdens and heavy weights and heavy requirements on people, and you don't even lift a finger to help them bear those burdens and all of the crazy things we've shared with you as we've been going through this gospel around things they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath and what, you know, denoted kindling of fire and all those kinds of things and how far from your house can you go on the Sabbath? Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And here's what Jesus says as Peter comes in and Jesus knows that he spoke on his behalf without permission And he says, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Now, Jesus is going beyond the temple now, reaching out into the world, into society, and say, when kings come and conquer a land, what do they do? Do they tax their family? Or do they tax the people that they conquered? Obviously, they tax the people that they conquered. The people who were the sons and the daughters, the family, they're exempt. They're they're tax-free. They don't get taxed. The people who were conquered get taxed. Peter answered him and said, well, I think the right answer is A, strangers, Lord. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, right? Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth... You will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. The temple belonged to God the Father, right? Now, who is Jesus? Son of God. God incarnate. We know going all the way back to the Old Testament, looking at how the temple was constructed, all of the implements of the temple, everything that was in there, the menorah, the basin for washing, the altar, everything had a significance, the showbread, everything pointed to Christ. Jesus was the Lord of the temple, was he not? Not just the one on earth, but the one in heaven. Where in the book of Revelation we're told that one day we'll see the temple in heaven as the temple on the earth was to be a replica of that, we'll see it in heaven. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son. And so the sons are free, right? Jesus is saying, look, I don't have to pay the temple taxes because I'm the Son of God. He says, nevertheless, verse 27, lest we offend them. In other words, continuing to give them a reason not to believe. You know, and it's like our witness, right? It's like when we do things that offend people or they... Uh, by our behavior, and we give them a reason to not believe. Jesus is saying, hey, lest we offend them, 
And you kind of get the sense here, like Paul talked about with meat sacrificed to idols and dealing with weaker people, weaker believers, people who are weaker in their faith, and it's usually the people who think they're the more mature ones. He says, lest we offend them, let's, let's just pay the tax. So here's what we're going to do, Peter, since we have no money. Do you have any money? I don't have any money. Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. Now, Peter is a professional fisherman. You may remember one time previously when Jesus had encountered Peter and the guys after fishing all night, and they came in, and Jesus said, did you catch anything? And they said, nah, we fished all night. We didn't get anything. So he says, well, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And there was this exasperation in Peter's voice where he said, ah, all right, Lord, because it's you, fine, I'll throw the net off the other side of the boat if it makes you happy. And he kind of half-heartedly throws the net over the other side, and all of a sudden the net is full. And Jesus demonstrated that he was Lord over the universe, Lord over the fish, Lord over the, the lake. And here, Peter, being a professional fisherman, Peter would never fish with a hook. See, that's something people do for recreation. That's what you and I do. We go to a, a, a bridge somewhere and we cast a hook off and we hope to catch something and we just kind of kill some time. Peter didn't have time to be wasted by fishing with a hook. He never did something like that. He would never do something like that. So what did Peter do? Jesus said to him, and take the fish that comes up first and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Now, we aren't given the end of the story here. This is kind of open-ended, but the implication is that Peter did what Jesus told him to do. He went out and he said, fishing with a pole, with a hook? I haven't done that since I was a kid. Why would I do that? But he went and he did it. And he opened its mouth, and there, because there was a half shekel per person, and he said, go find money for you and me, no doubt he found a whole shekel of money in the, the mouth of this first fish. You get the idea. He throws the line in and pretty quickly, apparently, this fish bites. He pulls it up and he gets it and he just takes it off the hook and opens its mouth, reaches in. There's a shekel. Throw the fish back. Release and catch, right? Being a good citizen. And he takes that shekel and he goes and he pays the temple tax and he says, this is for me and Jesus. Now, why did he do this? What's the point of this story? And this is the only place the story is told in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not told in any of the other Gospels. It's the only miracle using money, and it's the only miracle using just one fish. And there's this beautiful picture in Psalm 8 where we see a literal fulfillment of the psalmist's words. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Psalm 8, verses 6 and 8. Jesus said, look, we need some money. Okay, go catch a fish. There's some money. Let's move on. Let's not focus on the money. Let's focus on serving the Lord. And there was this impediment. There was this obstacle to continuing forward to serve the Lord. They had come to this point in time when they needed to pay this temple tax. Jesus says, we don't have any money, but God does. Remember Psalm 55, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And if I had need, I wouldn't tell you. But I'll provide what you need when you need it. And so the Lord said this thing to Peter. Peter did it. And one thing we can learn from this last little story, this last little illustration, is to be obedient to the Lord. First and foremost, to the things that are already revealed to us in his word, things that we already know we're not doing, that he's told us that we should do. And by the way, if we are seeking to hear the Lord's voice and to follow him, and maybe we've kind of hit this roadblock in our lives and we're going, Lord, why haven't you revealed the next step to me? Often the, the, the answer, the reason is going to be because I've already revealed five or ten other things to you that you haven't obeyed. Peter, if you do what I tell you, if you go cast a hook into the sea and you find a fish and you pull it up and you open its mouth and there's a coin, there's a shekel, half for you, half for me. You see, God does those things. 
He does them today. I have heard so many stories from missionaries who did not have what they needed to go on the field. They didn't have what they needed in the bank. They couldn't pay for the plane ticket to go to where they needed to go. And I love reading missionary biographies. If you've never read missionary biographies, you should do that. But people said, Lord, I know you're leading me to go to make this sacrifice, to take this step. But I have nothing. You've got to provide everything. And God does it. And he wants us to live with that same raw faith that a missionary lives with. Because you see, we're all missionaries. Because out there is a lost and a dying world that doesn't know Christ. We are those who have been given the truth. We've been given the light. We've been given the gospel. You see, we're all missionaries. Call it a domestic missionary as opposed to a foreign missionary. But we need to trust the Lord just as much as they do. Maybe God wants to use us to give to their ministry to support them in what they're doing. Maybe God has blessed us because we have jobs and we can, we can pay for ourselves and meet our, meet our needs because God has given us everything. But we need to be aware of these things and understand as the, as the scriptures tell us over and over and over, everything we have belongs to the Lord. Think about everything you have in your possession, all of your finances, your retirement account, your cars, your house, and all of your stuff. It belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. And it's our job to be responsible stewards of the things God has given to us, our time, our talent, our treasure, and to use these things for his glory. As we go up on the mountain and we receive from the Lord, we get filled up, we come down off the mountain and we encounter things in life. Whatever they are, whether it's a demon-possessed child or I don't have enough money to pay a tax or I'm dealing with the difficulties of the truths of the scriptures, God wants to bless us. He wants to fill us up and he wants to use us for his glory. Will you, will I be used for his glory? Am I willing to concede and let go of something and open my hand and say, Lord, here it is? There's this beautiful scripture in Psalm 69, if you've never read the story of George Mueller, who was over some uh, orphanages in Bristol, England back in the 1800s. And he felt like the Lord was calling him to be sort of the guy who addressed this issue with all these orphans and found orphanages and take care of these kids. And he's like, how do I do this? I don't have any training. There's no society. There's no training course you go to to learn how to be the headmaster of an orphanage. I'm just listening to the voice of God. How do I do this? And one day he's reading it in Psalm 69. There's this verse that says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And he says, that was the Lord. I knew it in that second. And he said, so I just went in faith and I just did what God told me to do and he did that. I opened wide my mouth and he filled it. Uh, bread trucks, milk trucks would break down. Their axle would break in front of our house and they would come and knock on the door and say, uh, Mr., we got all this bread or this milk, it's going to spoil. Can you use it? And he's like, yeah, we just sat down to the table. We had no food, but we just sat down and prayed and then the knock came on the door and there's the food. And God provided it. And God still does it, folks. He still works in these ways, he still provides, he still does these things if we are willing. You see, we will see it if we're willing to submit ourselves to the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for teaching us. May you call out of us this morning faith. Faith is a mustard seed. To trust you, to believe you, to follow you. Lord, we're just people. We're just sinners saved by grace. But we've been given the gospel. We've been given a new lease on life. We've been given the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sin. We know our eternal destiny. It is sure our names are written in the book of life. How much more could you have given us than what you've already given? And yet, Lord, we are so ungrateful. We're so discontented. May we lift our eyes toward heaven this morning and see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. The train of your robe filling the temple. May we see the transformation of your glory, your light, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And may we be vessels, may we be conduit to the world around us of your love. 
May you speak to us, may you speak through us, may you fill us up, and may our lives overflow like that gush, that torrent of living water that you spoke of in John chapter 7. Come to me, and I will fill you up. Lord, we want to be filled. Lord, for any this morning who may not know you, who've never trusted in Christ, may this be the moment where they simply say, Jesus, I I don't know, I just come to you and I, I, I give myself to you. Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to be a part of your kingdom and I want to be your son or your daughter and I want to follow you. I don't know what it means. I don't know how to do it, but Lord, show me. And God, as they pray that prayer this morning, we know that you will answer it right away. You love that prayer. So Lord, bless us as your people, as your church. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.